Amen. I'd love for you to take the Word of God and turn to the book of Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter number 1. If you need the Word, there should be a Bible there underneath the pew. I'd love for you to take it out and see the Word of God for yourself. And this morning we'll pick up a new journey. You know, we finished Mark for the most part. I know there's a couple of sermons that I've promised you that are coming. Um, I just don't quite feel confident that I can preach those with faith yet, in the sense of working through all of the nuances of a couple of those issues. But Lord willing, that'll that'll come soon. So those are still in the wings. So you pray for me in that, and those will come probably in the midst of, of this book. But for the time being, the Lord, for many reasons, uh, I believe, desires for us to um, take the, Philipp- the book of Philippians as a whole and preach through it verse by verse. So we'll begin um, this morning. If you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word, as we see pictured in Scripture. And we'll take up our reading in verse 1 and read through verse number 5 this morning. And then we'll get into the message Paul, by the Spirit of God, writes these words in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Let's pray. Again, Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather. Father, we come to you simply to say that we love you. We are so thankful for the grace that you've extended to us, Father, not in just another day to live and breathe, but another day, Father, to live with wells of living water flowing through us. Father, we are so thankful for Christ and all that he's accomplished on our behalf. He truly is our hope in life and in death. Father, if we are to live not only for eternity, but to live now, Father, we know that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So we pray this morning that you would help us to magnify his name, Father, that he would ultimately be glorified um, in and through us, Father. And we know that by virtue of that, that we will be strengthened, that we will be increased in faith, that our joy will be um, upheld and stronger than ever before, Father. We know that, that we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we, we pray this morning, Father, that we would not up, uphold and bolster, Father, ourselves, but we would truly have that mind which is in Christ Jesus. Um, he, Father, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself and became a servant, Father, why that we might know him and love him and that we might have life forevermore. So... And that same mind which was in Christ, that that mind of humility and sacrifice and service, Father, may we too have that this morning. Come humbly to the throne room of grace, Father, seeking food from heaven that you might strengthen, encourage, Father, and use us for your honor and for your glory. And Father, we cast ourselves at your feet because we know that in and of ourselves we can do nothing. But we know that, Father, when we cast ourselves at the feet of Christ, depending wholly upon the Spirit, that you can accomplish eternal things. So, Father, take your word this morning and use it, Father, for eternal things. May we lay treasure up in heaven this morning, and may you use it, Father, ultimately to that end. Father, we love you, we thank you, we praise you, and we lean on you in this hour. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. 
It's, it's always somewhat of an awkward time to begin a new book because there's generally somewhat of a necessity to kind of introduce the book. So it takes um, a little bit of time to kind of set the pace and get the run started. It's like a race um, in which that initial part is the part that you really don't like to do, but unless you begin on the right foot, you won't continue on in the race. That There's a context in which a book is written. There's a purpose in which it's written. And unless you know that, you really deprive yourself of some of the life that is within the book. So just a couple of minutes to lay the foundation, and then I really want to um, give you the message this morning. But we approach what many of our Bibles and your Bibles have entitled the Epistle of Paul, the Apostle to the Philippians. We refer to it as the Book of Philippians, but in all reality, it's a letter. And that's what we mean by the term epistle. When we approach the book of Philippians, we're talking about the epistle or the letter to the Philippians. A letter or a message was a primary form of communication in those days in the New Testament. You know, boys and girls, we know that there were no iPhones, there were no text messages, there was no FaceTime, there were no emails. If someone was to communicate, not face to face, but from place to place without seeing one another, it was done by a letter. And that may sound like it needs not to be said. But sometimes we can get so rooted in our context that we forget that in former days um, life was, was different. If someone was to communicate, it was often done by letter. And, that, and it needs to be said because it's somewhat of a foreign concept today. Um, but it... Because we don't write letters anymore. When you look at the scriptures, oftentimes, when you're looking from the outside in, we can look at it like it's a theological book. And in some sense, it is a theological book. But when we look at the book of Philippians or the book of Colossians or the book of Ephesians or the book of Corinthians, I think that it is important to remember that this was a real letter. And today we teach our children to write letters, particularly for the general purpose of to know how. But, but that seems about the only time that anyone ever writes a letter anymore, you know. But in previous generations, people wrote letters because it was part of the culture. They actually had a reason. And in other words, something provoked the writing. It provoked the conversation. Especially within Scripture, there are things that provoked Paul to write. I think it's important to remember that. That what Paul is not doing is sitting somewhere in a in a second story theological library, waxing eloquent, writing a systematic theology, um, trying to be ultimately academic and, and writing a letter such as Colossians to a people because he wants them to understand um, Christology from an academic sense. He's not here waxing eloquent. He's not a theologian um, in the sense of an occupation or a career. Um, what Paul is, is Paul is an apostle. He's one sent particularly to the Gentiles. He's planting churches. He's shepherding people. He has the love of Christ shed abroad in his heart and he has a love for the people. So when you read books like Colossians, like Ephesians, like Philippians, like Corinthians, what you have is the Holy Spirit um, using this apostle this this man and he is carrying him alone to along to write a a letter to a people but he's using circumstances to do that 
He's not writing a theological book. He's not writing an encyclopedia of, of doctrinal, um, the attributes of God. Um, what God is using to provoke him to write the scripture that we have pre- preserved for us up to this day are real circumstances. Paul's a real guy. He's not some super spiritual Christian elite um, who is perfect. God is working through him in, by his spirit in a similar way that he does through us today. And when we find we come across the book of Philippians, we actually come across a letter Um, That was written by a real person by the name of of Paul, writing to a real, from a real place, um, a place called Rome, writing to a real group of people um, known as the church in a real place called Philippi for a real purpose. The Apostle Paul was saved by the grace of God. We have that story recorded for us in Acts chapter number 9. He was a religious uh, Pharisee. He was... Um, one of those who were within the um, Old Testament Judaism, Christ comes along and he's a zealous man for what he believes to be the glory of God. So he sets out to murder Christians. Um, in the midst of accomplishing and doing that, Jesus Christ meets him on the road to Damascus, um, speaks a word to him. He's converted. He leaves Judaism and now he's on the road for serving and honoring God, even to his death. He sacrifices and forsakes everything, even to his death. Why? Because he met the resurrected Christ in the midst of his life. And it is in this place in the book of Philippians that we find him on that road to seeking to honor the Lord. And he's writing from a place called Rome to a true place called Philippi. Where is he at in Rome? Well, this letter would be postmarked if it was postmarked a Roman prison. Um, and the apostle makes that clear here in the book of Philippians. These are what are also often known as the prison epistles. Why? Because the apostle Paul is in prison for the, for the preaching of God's word. And verse number seven, we read, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers of with me of grace. Verse 13, verse 14, verse 17. All recount that he is writing this wonderful letter to the church at Philippi from a Roman prison chained to a Roman guard. Why does Paul write the letter? Again, because he's bored? No. Um, Because he just has nothing else to do. And he wants to contribute to Christianity something before he dies because he's on um, the path to being martyred by Roman centurions. And the answer is no. Paul is provoked to write because Paul has a need. If you read, if you flip over to Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 25... Um, You you read what that need is in some sense. Paul writes this in the middle of this book. He says, yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. The church at Philippi hears that the apostle Paul is imprisoned in Rome. The church knows Paul. Because Paul was instrumental in planting this church some ten years previous on his second missionary journey. 
And because of the love that they have for this man, they send a man by the name of Epaphroditus to Paul while he's in chains. During Epaphroditus' visit, so Epaphroditus leaves Philippi because he hears Paul's in prison, has such a love for this brother that Epaphroditus visits Paul. And during Epaphroditus' visit, Paul writes back a letter to Philippi to express his thanks with some exhortation and some instruction. And it almost doesn't make it back to Philippi because Paul tells us later in Philippians chapter 4 that while Epaphroditus is visiting Paul in Rome, Epaphroditus becomes sick and almost dies, which would have been, as Paul says, a tremendous loss. For the church, it's likely that Epaphroditus was a pastor at Philippi or at least one of the leaders, elders within the church. And it may not sound that big of a deal going to visit Paul in prison, because after all, that's what pastors do. But what if I told you that in a world that had no airplanes, trains, buses, sub or, um, um, uh, subways, that this man traveled, it's estimated approximately 800 miles, probably by foot to visit Paul from Philippi, that he's walking on foot, at most a donkey um, or a camel if he's rich. But he's at Philippi. He hears that Paul's imprisoned for the gospel and he has such a love and care for this man, but this relationship with this man by the name of Paul, that he spends at least two months, if not more, because he's sick, two months simply traveling. To visit Paul in Rome. Why? Because Paul had a need. He's there to bring some support to Paul. Not only emotional support, love and care, but material support as well. The church's desire in sending Epaphroditus was to ease the burden of their brother. And even some sense the father, um, their spiritual father. This is not the first time that the church has supported the apostle. It's not like they heard of him on television or saw him preach on TBN and they wanted to give something to the ministry that they may be blessed and honored. And when you read 415, they supported Paul, um, not only there, but later in a place called Thessalonica on one more occasion. And in 2 Corinthians 11, you discover that when he was at Corinth, Paul wouldn't receive support from even those at Corinth, but he did receive Paul or support from Macedonia. And that's where we find Philippi. This letter is really unique in a lot of ways. We need to remember that. When we read God's word, we often read of it somewhat detached and abstract, this book of theology. And in some sense, it is that. I don't want to undermine that. But two, when you read the book of Philippians, what you read is actually a letter from the apostle to the church at Philippi recounting many things. And one of those things is their unique relationship. Unlike many letters, um, the apostle Paul writes to Philippi, um, not like in Galatia, not like to Colossae, not like to Corinth. Um, that This is a, a letter that is largely um, just a celebration of these people. It's, it doesn't seem to be that they have any great doctrinal problems, no great glaring moral issues to correct. If there's any problems, they seem to be somewhat minor and a secondary issue. That this, that this letter is more of a warm, encouraging, joyful expression of the relationship that Paul has with those at Philippi. It's not like a... A, a, um, a professor writing a letter to his students. It's like a father 
writing letters to his children who are now grown. And they are seeking to serve and honor the Lord. And in their expression of faith and, 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 and living out their Christ and their Christian principles, Paul is seeking to come along and tell them how proud he is of them and continue to exhort and celebrate what God is accomplishing in and through them. This is uniquely, um, most Christians believe, and I do as well, that this is one of the most intimate of all of Paul's letters. Again, it's not um, cold, it's not indifferent. It is like a father to a son or a brother to a brother. He celebrates what the Lord has and is doing in them with the utmost joy. And he wants them to know how much he cares and he loves them. That these were real circumstances that God uses and the Holy Spirit carries them along to write this letter that God used. Many providential circumstances to forge a bond that a church was within a group of people that a church was willing to give of their materials, even at their loss and even their men to send them 800 miles to sacrifice themselves, even to the point of death. Because of the love that they have for this man. Doesn't that just sound strange to us today? You know, in an individualistic culture in which everyone is out for themselves, even at the point that I'm going to take care of myself and no one else um, to the loss of others, climbing over anyone and everyone. This man has the Paul has the mind of Christ such that he's willing to humble himself and give himself as a servant to these people. And in response, these people are willing to give themselves for Paul, in so many ways. Paul even says that in, in, uh, in Philippians 2.29. Uh, other Paphroditus, he says, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, with joy, and hold such men in his esteem or respect. Because of the work that Christ, he came, because of, for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. That God gave him a love for Paul, Epaphroditus had a love for Paul and saw and a love for Philippi such that he, he saw his service to Christ and Philippi in the service service to Paul. And he was willing to live for it and die for it. Not only that, but Paul seems to have a supreme affection for these people. All the commentators agree, and I as well, that this is one of the most, if not the most intimate of all of Paul's letters personally written to any of the churches. And one pastor I was listening to this week says, quote, when we write letters to people, the degree to which we express our deepest thoughts generally are in direct proportion to the level of friendship. The more intimate the friendship, the deeper the bonds of affection, the freer we feel to express the range of our thoughts and feelings. So we may ask the question, and this is the question I want to ask this morning. How did this man enter into such an intimate and tender relationship so that he felt free to bear his heart? At such a deep and intimate level. You don't write letters like this just to anyone. You know, you don't reveal your utmost feelings. You don't just um, write and correct anyone and everyone. You can only do that as a father to a son. Or as um, a mother to a child. Or as a brother to a brother. Or as a friend to a friend. Um, how is it that this relationship was formed? 
Um, and it's ultimately, it's ultimately, I want to take us back to the beginning. So turn with me to Acts chapter number 16. Because in Philippians, he writes this in verse number five. Or verse number three, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. In verse number five, he says, one of the things that I thank my God for is for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul, in this intimate letter, bases at least in part the foundation of it upon their first days together. That their fellowship, their bond, their love for one another was forged um, in how they began. Which is going to give them uniquely a relationship that Paul doesn't seem to have with any of the other churches. But I think it's arguable that they possibly, they should, you know. Philippi, Philippi had a special bond with Paul, such that when no one else was supporting him at Thessalonica, Corinth, Philippi was there, even at their own loss of material and blessing. Um, and God blessed them for it. God blessed them for it. So Acts chapter 16, we see the birth of the church at Philippi. Paul is extremely instrumental in this. And in this count, I want us to see um, three things. That God is the one doing the work of sending men. Two, God is the one doing the work of saving sinners. And three, God is doing the work of planting and sustaining churches. And ultimately, I want us to conclude this morning. You can conclude it yourself or you can just totally reject it and we can debate about it afterwards. But ultimately, I think we should conclude that God is the reason. God is the origin and the sustainer of this relationship between Paul and Philippi. That he's the reason why it's so rich with joy and love. That ultimately, because it is rich in Jesus Christ. Where you're going to find that relationships like this only exist in Christ. You're going to read through this and you're going to find that otherwise, without the direction of the Spirit of God, to the apostle, by the power of the spirit, directing him and doing the saving and the work of saving men through the gospel. That this doesn't exist outside of that. And you know that, you know, and this, but you know that today, if you're outside of Christ, you know that this type of relationship seems like a fantasy to you. It seems like a fairy tale that cannot be attained. You've lived long enough and you know um, that you can take care of number one and number one alone. But I would argue that part of the saving grace of God is not just to save men eternally, abstractly, in a vacuum, somewhere beyond. But that life begins now and that life extends not only to individuals, but to groups of people. And when the gospel takes grip upon the affections and the lives of, of people and the love of Christ is shed abroad in their heart. It's not only individual, but it's collective. And God extends that grace as we have the mind of Christ one to another that we are willing to come along one another and give our lives for one another in whatever capacity God calls. Why? Because that's what Christ accomplished for us. <clears throat> that, that the Christian life is not a Christian life of individualistic um, living. That it's just me and, and, and Jesus alone. And forget the rest of the world. That when you read the New Testament and the Old Testament... That God saves the people. He has a bride. And that bride is collective. And that love is expressed in a group of people. 
And they have a fatherly type of love for their children in the faith, like Paul to Timothy, who had no biological children of his own that we know, but, 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 but had a love for him such that he comes of him with a tender heart of a mother and the tender heart of a father. And you find brothers and saints who come along with one another who are willing to live and die for one another. That only exists within the sovereign power of an almighty God and the glorious nature of the gospel. The world does not teach us that, but Christ does. And, ultimately in the expression of him giving himself on Calvary. So within the context of those things, I want you to see that God's the one that does the work in all of this area. And that it cannot be accomplished by man and man alone. Human ingenuity, um, human strength, skill, intellect um, can run a business well. Um, But God's the one who accomplishes the work within the church. Um, And I think that that's what we'll see here in Acts chapter number 16. So first, God does the work of sending men. It's by a sovereign direction of the Spirit of God that the gospel is brought to Philippi at all. You know, Um, in Acts 14, what you read is Paul and Barnabas. You remember Paul. He's saved in Acts chapter number 9 by the the glorious um, grace of God on the road to Damascus. Um... Paul has a period of time where he's maturing in the faith. He's coming from Judaism um, to Christianity. And God is is really growing him. Eventually, um, God directs him to the nations. Paul's going to be, um, along with Barnabas, um, these two men that are going to be used by God to reach the nations, the Gentiles. Right? You have two groups of people in the Old and New Testament. Jew, Gentile. Um, anybody that's not a Jew is a Gentile. Paul's going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 14, um, what we see is Paul is finishing his first missionary journey to the lost, to the Gentiles. Um, Paul has what we know of, at least three missionary journeys. What I mean by that is that Paul, along with someone else, is going out into the world, preaching the gospel, planting churches, and being used of God to reach the nations with the gospel. And that's exactly what happened by the end of the first century. You know, if he, uh, chapter, uh, Acts chapter 19 um, tells us, and history tells us, you know, that the gospel had reached all throughout Asia um, by that point. And he did it through the church planting efforts and the gospel preaching of the apostle Paul at Ephesus. And um, we come prior to that. That's the second missionary journey. Um, he finishes up in Acts chapter 14, that first missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 15, we see Paul and Barnabas, um, after the Jerusalem council, desire, after possibly two or three years, to get back out on the road. So they've came home, like a missionary, goes out for a period of time, um, finishes up the work that they feel God's called them to do for that period, um, comes back in uh, for a sabbatical, for a rest, for whatever reason. So Paul and Barnabas have been off the field for years now, and they're itching to get back out. Into Why? Because the, the gospel needs to be taken to the nations. At the, act, at the end of Acts chapter 15, we see that. Paul and Barnabas now are going to go back out into the world, or at least have a desire to do that. Why? To, to strengthen the churches, they say, that were already established, and ultimately to reach the rest of the world with the gospel. At the end of uh, Acts chapter 15, though, there's a schism. Why? Because Paul wants to take... Uh, because Barnabas wants to take a man that had abandoned the ministry in the first missionary journey, and Paul doesn't. Paul says Mark's not ready, Barnabas says he is, and there's a schism. Barnabas takes Mark one direction, Paul takes another man by the name of Silas um, in another direction. 
In Acts chapter 16, we see the beginning of that second missionary journey. In Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, um, what we see is that Paul and Silas don't go alone. They actually pick up a young man by the name of Timothy. Um, you, know the, you, you know that name. First and Second Timothy are written by Paul to Timothy at a later um, life. Why? Because he had a real reason to encourage Timothy in the faith and instruct him um, uh, within, within the church. So now, in Acts chapter 16, we meet Paul, Silas, and a young man named Timothy who's going to be a blessing to them um, in the work of ministry. And I think that that will be important later. All right, Verses 1 through 5. Um, they're visiting churches, they're strengthening churches, they're encouraging churches. And after that, they're trying to figure out where in the world do we go next. And it seems that he initially operates simply off logic. Verse number 6, uh, 16, Acts 16, verse 6. And when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had gone to Mycenae, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troash, and a vision appeared to Paul. Um, so where are they to go? Um, it seems, initially, they operate simply off of logic and desire. And that's not a bad thing, especially if they're good ones. He wants to reach the world with the gospel, Paul. And he has Asia as his target. Seems like the natural conclusion. He's traveling through the region of Galatia already. And Asia's right there. He's strengthening churches. They border the area that's in Asia. Today it's what we know as Turkey. It's the area that we just left in the book of Revelation where we find seven churches of Asia Minor. You'll remember Ephesus is there. Thyatira is there. And, and so many other churches. It seems logical. But our Lord sovereignly directs him otherwise. How? By closing doors. He directs him negatively. How? By closing doors. Verses 6 through 8. Two times it says they were forbidden. Of what? From preaching the gospel. Verse 6 and verse 7. Paul seems like a good thing. Just wants to preach the gospel. Give his life. And what does it say? He's forbidden. By who? By the Spirit. The Spirit in verse 7 does not permit them. You know, how does he do that? We don't know. It may have been through giving the missionaries this inward impression once they're there. Or through outward circumstances like illness. Jewish opposition. Who knows? For whatever reason. God is moving these men where He desires. God is sovereign over those whom He sends, when He sends, why He sends, and how He sends. So it, seem, it seemingly, what we have here is not just two days of operation. What we actually see here is possibly months of trying to discern where does God want us to go? Where should we be? Where does the gospel need to be preached? Let's go to Asia. Um, let's go to Bithynia. God says no. You can imagine the discouragement that possibly fell over Timothy. Paul, and his mis is, he doesn't understand. Silas, I'm not sure what's going on here. Maybe we shouldn't have even set out on this track. You know, what is God doing? I mean, we want to preach the gospel. These people are lost. It's not reached Asia, Min uh, Asia Minor yet. It's a ripe field for the gospel. Yet they don't give up. They trust the Lord. Um... And God, so, so what do they do? They go down to Troas. Um, Troas, and again, this isn't a two-day trip. You know, this is probably three to four hundred mile trek as they go from Galatia to Bithynia down to Troas. They're pushing on doors. You know, they're not sitting there waiting for, um, you know, an, an extra revelation from heaven. 
you know, um, just with their hands tied. These men have God-given desires because of what Christ has accomplished on their behalf to reach the world with the gospel. So what do they do? They use what God has given them to push on doors. They go to Asia and, and they push the door and it doesn't open. So they go where? To Bithynia. They push the door and it doesn't open. So what do they do? They say, let's go on down to Troas, you know, and we'll push the door there and see if it opens. And this demonstrates to us that in the outworking of the the mission of God, that there is a specific sovereign activity of the Spirit directing where the gospel should go through its appointed men, through its messengers. You know, as we were at the RB Net Network, this was a point that um, the, the preacher there pushed in on, you know, that that many times we look at a closed door as if it is um, opposition extremely negatively of God and that if it was as if we're doing something wrong. Not always, not always. The wrong thing is not to push on any doors at all, you know. That God should give us a desire to go out into the world and to preach the gospel because of what he has accomplished on our behalf. He has saved sinners like us and he desires every nation, tribe and tongue. Thus, we should be out in the community, you know, even as a church, as we're, we're thinking about another location. You know, the question is, is, is what doors have we actually pushed on? You know, it's God who directs where this church should go. You know, are we seeking God in prayer? Are we pushing, you know, to say where in Kingsport or do you want us in Kingsport at all? You know, do you want us on the outskirts? What community um, should we be in? You know, um, uh, what area do you want us in, Lord? You know, and instead of you know, sitting around and waiting on just a revelation to pop out of heaven, we should be um, out and about preaching the gospel, pushing on doors, um, not being discouraged because one closes and not another one opens. What you find here is, is that two massive doors, which seem like great doors and good desires, God says no. And he doesn't say no ultimately, but he says no now. Because what you're going to find is, is that the same Paul who is deterred from going to Asia Minor now, just three chapters later, years down the road, he's going to use that same Paul um, to walk through that door that he originally desired. But he's going to say, you need to go through Philippi first. You need to go to Macedonia first. And he uses them later to reach Asia for the glory of God, which, which will reach um, the, the nations with, for the cause of Christ. That what you see here is that often God uses... Closed doors um, to to direct his men and his women, his churches um, to where he desires them. And this is true of missionaries. You know, David Campbell at the, the meeting had quoted A.T. Pearson, who said, you know, we all know of Livingston who went to Africa. But did you know that prior to that, Livingston tried to go to China? William Carey wanted to go to Polynesia and the South Seas, but God directed him to India. The Judson that we know of who went to Burma for the glory of God. And we still talk about his mission efforts today. Did you know that he first tried to go into India? But God closed the door and, 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 and they were not deterred. Why? Because, because they knew that, there was a, that God would open a door. Right? Remember that church in, the church, uh, in, in, in Revelation that says that, that God opens doors which no man could shut? That he has the keys of David? Right? He has the authority to open. That's the idea. That when God opens a door, He opens a door that no man can shut. But sometimes there are shut doors that men have to push on before they know where to go. So negatively, we see God closing doors. And then ultimately, we see God opening a door. In verse number 9. 
And a vision appeared to Paul in, a night, uh, in, night, in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. That that he, Lord works negatively, but he often works also he also works positively. That there is a door that ultimately they push on. That 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 door is in Troas, which is almost adjacent across the sea from Macedonia, which contains a little town or a a a a, a city by the name of Philippi. How he comes to him in a vision, you know. It, it took him to go to Asia, to, the, to Bithynia, to get to Troas for the Lord to come to him and say, this is where I want you to go. I'm a man from Macedonia in the vision. We don't know exactly all the details of that. We don't know how he knew that he was a Macedonian. We don't know how um, he knew all the things that he knew. But during the, in the vision, Paul was assured that this is where God would have them to go and preach the gospel. So what did they do? They woke up probably the next day. Paul woke up and he said, I got this vision from the Lord. And it says they concluded. They put their heads together. That's what it means. Conclude. They got together as Paul, Silas and Timothy and whoever else was in their band of men. And they said, this is where the Lord wants us to go. They were in agreement. And God, in his kind providence, takes them in a straight course. In verse number 11, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and the next day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi. Philippi is in Macedonia, the Macedonian call, we call it. God calls them over to Philippi and he blesses the voyage over there. No winds to impede them, um, but, but, but winds behind their sails. And it probably took months for them to discern, you know, where should we go? You know, and in God's timing, with God's men. See, he redirected men as well. Barnabas, you weren't supposed to go. I'm going to give you Saul or Silas and Timothy. All right. It wasn't who we planned to go with, but Lord, we're trusting you. Uh, I want to go to Bithynia. I want to go to Asia. Closed door, closed door. Wasn't where we planned to go, but Lord, we'll go. God chooses his men, right? those who are prepared for the work, and prepares them for the work, and he sends men. When it's his time. But sometimes that we need to be pushing on doors. And sometimes those doors will be closed. So Philippi. Philippi is a godless city. Um, it's pagan in origin. There's no believers here it seems. And thus they have the work set out for them. Number two. Not only does God um, send men. God does the work of saving men. Or saving sinners. That what you find is that when you get to Philippi, you find that the sovereign, mighty power of the Spirit of God in making the gospel effective at Philippi. That God's the one who directs men by His Spirit, and God is the one who saves men by His Spirit. In Acts chapter 16, this is just a broad uh, over, um, overview. But what you find is that, that Luke describes for us that when they get to Philippi, they immediately start ministering within weeks, um, if not earlier. And God does the saving power. God, through His saving power, saves three particular people. There may be more, but three within this account, God saves and forms this little church at Philippi. Number one, verse number 14, um, a woman by the name of Lydia. Verse 14, now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. That Lydia was a seller of purple 
You remember she was from that place in Revelation, that church that was established um, from a place in Asia called Thyatira. She's not a native of Philippi. She's probably there for business, probably a wealthy businesswoman, possibly a widow. Hails from Thyatira, um, steeped in paganism. But it seems at this point she's turned from that. And most people believe that when it says here she worships God, um, it's not speaking of the Christian uh, Christ, but of Judaism. That they're, they're going to meet. They're meeting by, for prayer by a river. And chances are because there's not enough people to form a synagogue in Judaism there. So they overhear the apostle um, Silas and Timothy there. Um, it says that, that, that uh, verse number 15, and when she and her household were baptized, uh, sorry, Verse number 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat there and spoke to the women who met there. That these women were, 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 were a part of a group who seemed to be um, converted to Judaism. They're studying the Old Testament, but they're not necessarily um, converted at the time. There's not enough men who are converted within that area to actually form a synagogue. According to Judaistic practices, you needed ten men to form um, a synagogue. They didn't have that. So by the river, they're there praying, primarily as women. And Paul the Apostle and these men, they go and they speak to them. And the text says in verse number 15, um, that the Lord opened her heart. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of that who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. That God saves her. God opens her heart and makes the gospel effective as these men um, reach out to her. Verse 16, we meet a demon-possessed girl. You know, the, the, this may even seem like a more hopeless cause. You have somewhat of a seeker in verses 14 and 15, but not this young girl. This young girl is demon possessed. She's totally taken over by another spirit that is not of God, um, who's totally possessed her. Um, the Apostle Paul, they're ministering for a period of time in this area. And this young girl is being manipulated and used and abused by a group of men who are using her um, for the, the, the powers, in a sense, that she has. Somewhat of a clairvoyant can predict the future in some sense. Um, if it's true demon possession, they have a power in which they can operate within. And these men are utilizing her for sale. They're using her as somewhat of a witch doctor. And what happens is, is that the Apostle Paul becomes grieved in his spirit such that he calls the demon out. And I conclude, you can, we can debate on this later, that this young girl is saved, freed from that and what you find is this girl who is totally overtaken by another spirit. The gospel, Paul comes in and Christ and delivers this young girl for the glory of God. Number three, a Roman jailer. Verse number 25, we read that great story of the Apostle Paul. After he delivers the um, slave girl being possessed, those guys get upset. Why? Because they had just lost business. Um, they can no longer utilize her. Why? Because she's lost the spirit in which they were making money off of her. What do they do? They go to uh, Romans uh, leaders and they say that this person, these people here are trying to change the laws of teaching against Rome. Um, so what do they do? They come and they bind them and they throw Paul and Silas in prison. Um, Paul and Silas in the midnight hour, though, cannot be stolen of their joy, says that they praised God. They sang and they prayed. They had a prayer meeting and they sang um, the, 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 the joy with the joy of Christ. 
Um, God intervenes in the midst, shakes that jail with an earthquake, um, releases Paul and Silas from their chains. And what you find is, is that that Roman jailer comes to the end of himself. Verse number 20 saying that he drew his sword about to kill himself. He's at the end of his ropes. He knows that if he stands now before Rome, he'll probably be prosecuted. Why? Because the prisoners got away. But verse 28, Paul called them with a loud voice saying, do yourself known we're all here. None of the prisoners are gone. None of us have ran away, you know, like we're here, we're here. And then he called for a light. It says ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. <clears throat> you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and, and all that were in his house. In the same hour, um, the, uh, it says that immediately he and all his family were baptized. You know? What you have here is you have the Lord sovereignly directing um, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to a group of people whom they would have no otherwise um, uh, went and, 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 and propagated the gospel to. That had they went to Asia, they would have never met these people. And God sovereignly directs. And through the preaching of the gospel, God saves three of the most unlikely converts. That's something that we need to understand. When he comes to Philippi, God in his sovereign goodness reaches as if it were to three major categories of Gentile sinners. You know, like it's more than just God saving three um, random people. When you begin to study who these people were, these people should not have been saved. One writer writes these words. He says, the apostles first visit to Philippi is recorded with a minuteness of detail, which has very few parallels in the book of Acts. The narrator joined Paul shortly before he crossed over into Europe. He says the exact personal knowledge of the writer combined with the grandeur and variety of the incidents themselves places the visit to Philippi among the most striking and instructive passages in the narrative. The three converts who were specially mentioned stand in marked contrast each to the other in national descent, in social rank, and in religious education. They are representatives of three different races. races. One's an Asiatic One's a Greek and the other's a Roman. He goes on to say, in relations to everyday life, they had nothing in common. The first is engaged in an important and lucrative branch of traffic. The second treated by law as mere slave chattel without any social or political rights to slave girl. And is employed by her masters to trade on credulous superstition of the ignorant. And the third, equally removed from both, holds a subordinate office under Roman government. In their religious training... They stand no less apart, he says. And the one, the speculative mystic temper of oriental devotion has at length found deeper satisfaction in the revealed truths of the Old Testament. She's converting to Judaism otherwise. In other words, the second, bearing the name of the Pythian God, the reputed source of Greek inspiration, represents an artistic and imaginative religion, though manifested in a very low and degrading form. While the third, if he preserved the characteristic features of his race, must have exhibited a type of worship essentially political in tone. He would have been a worshiper of Caesar. The purple dealer and proselyte of Thyatira, the native girl with a divining spirit, and the Roman jailer all acknowledge the supremacy of the new faith. In the history of the gospel at Philippi, as in the history of the church at large, is reflected the great maxim of Christianity. He says, the central truth of the apostolic preaching that here there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor um, male nor female, nor Gentile nor Jew. 
Paul is telling us that the Spirit of God is the mighty one who works in people to make the gospel effective, saving those opening hearts, delivering from sin those whom should never be saved. That's the idea. That these people are three people who would have never converged naturally on the scene. But not only does he save people, but he brings people together in the work of planting and sustaining churches. That's the idea. That's the glory and the miracle of this church. They should not exist. When you go over to Paul writing to Philippi, you're not writing to a bunch of um, holier-than-thou Christians who grew up in a religious state and were just birthed into this, um, this, this, this church um, because that's all that they'd ever known. No, what you find is at the core of this group is a Judaizer by the name of the Apostle Paul who was murdering Christians and three of the most uncommon people who should have never been together. You know, find the most extreme within our culture of social rank and religious status. You know, it's like it's like a, a Muslim born, a Christian and an atheist, you know, who are white collar, blue collar and no collar and thinking that they could get together and do anything in common because by nature, they're going to be pulling in every different direction. Divisions are going to inevitably come up. Why? Because they are so different. That the business world would say, the natural world would say, the secular person would say, there's no way in the world that you could build a business with these people. Why? Because morally they're different, ethically they're different, religiously they're different, socially they're different. They have nothing in common. And Jesus Christ, by His sovereign decree, and the Spirit of God puts together a group of men to go a place that, that wouldn't have been together, to go to a place that they would have never went to during that time, to save a people that should never have been saved, to plant a church that should never have been existed. You know, according to any natural process or means that God's doing the work of saving men. God's doing the work of sending men and God's doing the work of planting and sustaining churches. Number three, none of these people should have been saved. And none of them and, and, and even more than that, there's no way in the world that a church should have thrived with these three people, you know, but because God is the one who's doing the work. God's the one who's changing people. God's the one who's giving hearts, you know. Uh, he opens the hearts and He changes sinners and He saves them by the grace of God and He gives them the Spirit of Christ and that is what binds them together. And when you read the book of Philippians, I think there's 106 verses. There's an argument about what the primary theme is. But one of the primary themes is Christ, you know. Out of the 106 verses, I think more than 50 times Christ's name is used. That's every other verse. Christ is, is just, just dripping all over it. That how in the world could this group of people gather together who were religious opposites, social opposites, economic opposites, gender opposites, and work together in a New Testament context where that would have not been um, possible naturally. It's because they found Christ. Christ came to them, opened their heart. God opens the door to Philippi and God opens the door of Lydia's heart. He's the one that does the work. He's the one that plants churches and he's the one that sustains them. And that's what you see here. You see the beginning of a church. You don't just see three converts individually saved. You see the birth of a New Testament church. The most, uh, uh, of which is contained the most unlikely of converts. And the most unlikely of cohorts. Uh, verse number, uh, chapter 16 and verse number 15. What you find here is that at least in two of the cases we see a clear pattern. That following their conversion. What do we see? 
we see the church begin in some capacity. And so when uh, he heard when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she she persuaded us. One of the very first things that happens after Lydia is converted is not, hey, man, thanks. Like, we appreciate you. I've got the assurance of my salvation now. Like you should, you know, um, I'll call you later if I have anything else that I need. Now, no sooner is she brought into the faith that her heart becomes melted with the servants of Christ and a bond is forged, creating a climate of intimacy and service within the church at Philippi. That's what true saving faith does. It doesn't save us in a vacuum. It saves us. Christ saves us, changes our heart and gives us a love for one another that we had that we never had before. And I recognize that this isn't every church. But Paul will say later, you know, no one else had fellowship in the gospel with me but you. But it should be the testimony, I think, of every church. That that too is the sentiment of the jailer. That if you read in chapter 16 and verse number 32, immediately as he is saved, what does he do? He does the same thing as Lydia. I mean, hospitality is just born in him. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. Immediately they began, they began ministering to his family and he went home to, to see his family saved. And what you find is that you find that after he exits the, pri- the prison, he's converted. He brings his family, they're baptized, and they begin to minister the word of the Lord to him. That The group that has shown, he calls the brethren in verse 40. That now there is this body, this group, and they eventually go back to Lydia's house in verse 40. So now Lydia's converted, and now the jailer's converted. Now the Lydia comes and, and, and is, is, is cohorting or companions now with the jailer. These two people that shouldn't be together. They're not, they're not saved apart from one another. They're saved and they come together with Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Um, and you see that this church is born. You see that this church is born. Um, So what happened, you know, because in chapter 17, what happened to Philippi? Because in chapter number 17 and actually in verses number um, 39 and 40, what you find is, is that you find um, there's this ruckus that's caused among Roman leadership and Paul's in prison and the Romans find out that Paul's a Roman and he was never to be flogged if he was a Roman citizen. Now, Paul pulls the Roman card and says, you should have never done that, you know, um, um, so what happens is it scares Roman leadership and Roman leadership says, let them out of jail. That's enough. And, and tell them to go. Paul says, no, if they're going to let me out, they need to come let me out themselves. So they come and let him out. And in verse number 39, it says they came and pleaded with him that had brought them out and asked them to part from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, a group of people, so probably more saved than even these three, they encouraged them and departed. I mean, and you could ask the question, Paul, what are you doing? You haven't been there that long. These three are converted. You have a body, you know, like, why are you leaving now? <laughs> I mean, if you're, if you're arguing, Pastor, if you're arguing for a church and a group of people, it seems like the, the, the people just left and they're moving on to Amphipolis and Apollonia. And they came to Thessalonica. There were um, there, there was a synagogue of Jews. But I want to argue that they didn't leave them without leadership. If they understood the necessity of these newborn babes in Christ of being um, spiritually discipled, thus they left disciples behind. How do you get that? Because in verse number six of chapter 16, what do we read? Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, 
It doesn't seem that important, but if you're in the nature of writing in your Bibles, in verse number six, you would, I would like you to circle they. Does anybody remember who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Luke. What you'll find is a change in pronoun and those pronouns. That's right. It's his own personal pronoun. <laughs> um, he, uh, he identifies here in just a moment as we. Um, in verse number 11, when they sail from Troas, the, the, the pronouns change. Why? Because Luke is now including himself. Up to this point, it's been Paul, Silas, and Timothy. But when they leave Troas after the Macedonian call, what happens is, is that you see a change in the pronouns. And he says, therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course. The way that we understand that is that now Luke is including himself in the band of men. That it's not only at Philippi, it's not only Paul, Silas, Timothy. But now it's Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Luke, somewhere in Troas, is now bound himself with this band of men, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to minister at Philippi. What happens? Three are converted, probably more. There's a group of people. Acts chapter 17, what do we see? We see the change again. Now when they had passed through, who? Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas are now leaving Luke behind. A mature man in the faith to pastor these people. And what you'll actually find is that in Acts chapter number 20, as Paul is on his missionary journey, that you see another change. In Acts chapter 20, in verse number three, or 2, you see, Now when they had gone over the region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. That's where he was. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and uh, names that I can't pronounce to Thessalonians. And Gaius of Derby and Timothy and, Ty and Tychius and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi. Three to four, five, six, seven, eight years later, what you find is now Luke joins them again where? At Philippi. For the last seven, six to eight years, what you have is Paul birthing a church by the power of the gospel, leaving behind Luke as leadership to disciple these people for six to eight years, probably from Luke, from Acts chapter 16 to Acts chapter number 20, to foster that church, to encourage that church, to teach that church the word of God, to disciple these, these, these fledgling believers into the church that we find at Philippi. That, that that's how the New Testament church at Philippi is born. And that's how the New Testament church should be propagated um, in days to come. That what you have is an invasion of the gospel by the direction of the Spirit of God who closes door yet opens them. And when the gospel is preached to, 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 to sinners, God opens the door um, that is within the heart. And then leadership stays behind to disciple those fledgling believers up to the point where they can sustain themselves after elders have been brought up. That that's what these men did. That they came to the place of God's sovereign appointment. In the power of the Spirit, they preached the message they were appointed to preach. And when God made the message effective, they did not simply pack up their supplies and move on to the next town. 
They obeyed the commandment of the Lord. They gathered together of believers. They were hospitable to one another. They became brothers and sisters in Christ. They were fed weekly, if not daily. They were serving in the context of a body. Lydia opened her home up so that they could meet there probably as a church. They were giving of themselves um, one of another. And you see that sustained through the leadership up until Paul. And you see that thriving as he writes to Philippi. That this was a strong church. This was a loving church. Why? Because it was born of God. And after they were born of God, they got a heart one for another to where they were hospitable, opening themselves up. So when you get to Philippi, it's no surprise that there too, they would give up their materials as they heard of Paul in prison. They would walk 800 miles to, to, to ease his burden. Why? Because they can truly say, I thank God you know, for what he accomplished in and through you. That that's the birth of the New Testament church at Philippi. You know? How is it that they have such an affection for the Apostle Paul that they're willing to go not only in life but in death for this man because their relationship was wrought of the Spirit and not of men? That God had birthed in them through salvation a love not only for Christ but a love for one another that from the beginning they were willing to give of everything that they had one for another. And that was fostered and that was cultivated over years of discipleship. Um, to the point that, that at Philippi you find 10 years later, 10 to 12 years later it's predicted that this is written after the birth of that New Testament church. God uses them um, to, 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 to minister to Paul. That's what happens, you know. You know, God uses somebody to minister to you. What does it do? It just fuels you with gratitude and joy such that it causes you. Um, you're compelled because of the gratitude of heart of what Christ has accomplished in and through them to do it to others. That's so why when we look into the gospel, we see Christ's humility and the mind that he has. And is just overwhelmed as he forgives sinners um, by the grace of God for no other reason than he just pours out his grace. You see that? And you say, whom can I pour grace out on? You know? After all that God has given to me, whom can I give? After all that Christ has lived and died, whom can I live and die for? That's what you see in Lydia. That's what you see in the jailer. You don't see individual at Christianity. You don't see, you know, live and let live and die and let die. You don't see every man for himself. You see every man for others. That's the heart of the gospel. Christ comes for you and you go for others. It was in the heart of the DNA of this church. That's why ten years later, it had only grown. That's why a man can go to such a length, even almost to the point of death. Why? Because he saw his brother worth it. If Christ is, is, is willing to die, and, and if the cost of this brother's life is the death of Christ, then, then, then too, mine, um, then, then he is worth mine. If he's worth Christ, he's worth mine. That that's what you see. You see that, you know, um, that that's the nature. We could learn so much from this. You know, in the application. We could learn that God led them by a combination of factors over a period of time, ending when they pondered their meaning together. We can learn that God uses both negative and positive factors to, to, do, to accomplish His will. We could, we could learn that God uses providence and natural means to direct men. We could learn that God uses uh, men to bring the gospel to the nations and permeate the world like in Philippi. We could learn a whole host of things, but I want, to, I want you simply to learn today is that it was all of God. That was it. From beginning to end, the book of Philippians, Paul can truly say that he's thankful to God for the bond that's forged here between him and Philippi because outside of the work of the Spirit of God, it truly never would have happened. 
God brought a group of people together that otherwise would have never been together. Paul wanted to go elsewhere. He had eyes for Asia. It was a good thing, but it wasn't time. They regroup. Let's go to Bithynia. It's a worthy, applaudable effort. God says, no, he closes the door. They may be thinking at this time, what are we to do? By the time they reach Troas, they're wore out. <laughs> because God, why? Because God has another plan for them. God knows what, who, and when to send the man. And in his sovereign and compassionate counsel, he prevents and provokes men. And we're to trust him in his inexhaustible wisdom. So they do. God opens the door to Europe. As a result, Paul and Silas preach the gospel. They proclaim the word. Essentially before the nations. And what God, and what does God do? He not only opens the door to Philippi, but he opens the door of Lydia's heart. And sheds the love of God abroad in her heart. What does she do in turn? With the love of Christ, she opens the door to her home for the entire church and whatever service is available. You see, the love for Christ is not compartmentalized by nature and moves forward. God opens doors of opportunity. God opens doors of hearts. And as a result, the church opens those doors of their lives one to another. That's what churches are. That's what churches do. Why? Because that's what Christ has done. That when we read the, the book of Philippians, we read a most intimate letter of a father to his children. I mean, whom were born by the sovereign grace of Christ. Not only was their salvation wrought, but their, their life together was born in that. Out of every rank, tribe, and tongue. And you say, what does that have to do with us? That's us. That's us. You know, you look around and you get to know people, somebody comes in externally and they just think, man, this is just a, you know, a group of people who are holier than thou. They all seem the upper echelon. I mean, I've had people say they come and they go, these people are just too good for me. And I say, you don't know us at all. We're just sinners saved by the grace of God. You know, like if you knew what I came from and you knew what they came from, you knew what they struggled with, you knew where they were, you know, like you just see when you get to know people, people from every social rank, from every from every um, different type of background. And you realize that if God saves anyone, he saves he saves the sinners, you know, and when you look at Lydia, like she was a good person from according to the natural standards, right? She was a, in every in every respect, she was a seeker looking after and going after Judaism, trying to find God. And, 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 and the text says that, that God comes and opens her heart, that even apart from that, she couldn't have been saved. You know, that, 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 that good people put a, a religious nail in the coffin. Why? Because they strive in their own self-righteousness to attain something with God and God must to save them. In their, own, in their legalism and in their own effort and their own strength and their own wisdom, they try to climb up some other way and God must open their heart. And it's the same with a demon-possessed girl. She's possessed by the world. And God must save her. At the end of His ropes, Roman jailer, He's going to end His life. He's at the end of His ropes. God must save him. And a sinner like me, you know, who grows up as somewhat of a moral child in, 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 with a hard life, you know, trying to seek after other men's approval and a particularly God God's, he must come in with the gospel and save sinners. And when he does, he gives us a love for one another. When you look around here, this is what we have. We're not, we're not a spiritual elite. We're saved by the grace of God. And God melts us together because of the love of Christ. That's the only reason we're here. We should not be together. 
You know? That's what we find. That, and the prayer is, is that God would melt our hearts together such that we would, we would lean on one another. I mean, is there anyone that you would walk 800 miles for just to alleviate the burden for the cause of Christ? Is there? Have you ever written a letter like this to anyone? Have you ever had a friend like this? You know? Within the fellowship of God's people, can you, can you write something so, be so, become so bare and intimate with one another? That's the idea. It's intimate, it's genuine, it's warm, it's celebratory, it's joyful. Why? Because of the relationship that God gave them that should not have been together. Paul should not have been friends with these people. Paul should have not been with these people. He was a murderer. But God saved him and God saved them and brought them together. You know, I was thinking of the letter that was written to, by Paul to Philippians. And, and I even questioned in my own heart outside of my family. Like, who do I have with, within the, the body like that? You know, like someone that could correct me, someone that could instruct me, someone that could, you know, and I have those people. I, I worry that you don't, you know. I worry that you don't have that relationship with another person in whom you can lean on and call on or who would write to you and could be uh, truthful and bare and open and intimate with another person. Uh, not only in, 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 in correction, but in exhortation and encouragement. Do you have that within the body? You know, just so happens providentially, I get a text from a brother who's not with us anymore this morning. And God has just born in us a kindred spirit and he often texts me. He texts me and he said this morning, I got this text when I woke up. He said, good morning, dear friend and brother in Christ. I love waking up each Lord's day early to begin worshiping the true and living personal infinite God. While praying for my family, church and matters in my own little world, I thought of you. Perhaps my intercession for you has come in a timely manner. Damon, since you. You have peace with God through faith in Christ. I pray that you may experience that blissful peace from God to strengthen you. He truly loves you. You know? What an encouragement it was just to receive a text knowing this morning. I was, right, I was thinking of Paul to Philippi. And this morning, God gives me a brother just like that. You know? And I have to say that the reason that I persevere today is because of the Spirit of God that's working in me, but it's also because the Spirit of God is working through you. You know? I don't think I'd be in the faith today if it wasn't for God's people. You know? I like to sound super spiritual, like I'm just grounded and firm in the faith, but, 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 but Christ often works not only through revelation like in the Macedonian call, but He works through God's people. And God's people, week in and week out, and day in and day out, are just such an encouragement and a strength to me. That I've been so sanctified because God has given me not only a biological family with a love, but even greater than that, a spiritual family who, who can impart to me the very love of Christ in a simple letter this morning, written in electronic form. You know? And all the anxiety of standing before you this morning just melted away in the peace of God because I knew that there was a brother taking me before the very throne room of grace in the presence of Christ. And I knew that if I was there, then I, I could stand strong and stand firm. My question is, is do you have that? Are you out there just hoeing the row alone because you can trust no man? You know, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's not Christianity, friends. 
Christianity is being so wrought with the Spirit of God that He saves the sinners whom should have never been saved and brings them together um, to have a relationship that is otherworldly. Such that we not only live, but we're willing to die just to ease the burden. Why? Because Christ was so gracious in doing that very thing to us. So let us, Philippians chapter 2, have this mind which is in Christ Jesus. If you don't have that here, I pray that it will be cultivated and fostered. Such that throughout the week, you can lean on one another, draw strength from one another. Why? Because we know that... Um, Satan is real, roaring about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. We know that the world, the flesh, and the devil would love nothing more than to consume. How will you stand? I can tell you that one of the greatest means that Christ has used is my own family and this church. Because it brings the word of God alive. And it often brings before me and provokes me with the very promises of God. When I am down, a brother comes and says, Brother, believe in the Lord. Find peace with God. You know that you have it. That we need one another. This is more than a letter. It's more than a book. This is Paul to a precious group of people. Who in Christ forged a bond. That will not only, not only be preserved in this world. But will be preserved in the next. As we live and worship him finally and fully. As he deserves. Throughout all eternity. So we should learn to love one another here. That the world may know of Christ because of the love that we have for one another. Let us love one another as Paul loved Philippi and as Philippi loved Paul. That can only be found in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you for the glory of Christ. We thank you for the privilege it is to just expound your word a little bit, Lord. To think on Christ, to magnify His name, and to recognize that it was all of God, that we are here for that reason, and that if we found anything good in this life, Father, it's not by our own ingenuity or our own strength, but the gracious act of a gracious Christ, that in Him we find life and life alone, but too we find it in His bride in his body, in his assembly. Father, I thank you for the glory that goes before me each and every week as we worship the Lord. I thank you for the love of Christ that he's given to this people. I thank you, Father, for the love that they express to me on a daily and a weekly basis. And Father, may you make that ever more apparent, not only in my life, but in theirs. Help us and aid us to draw strength from that, Father. And use it to make us more like your son. Father, give us more of Christ. And I trust that you'll do it by giving us more of one another. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing.